Sorry for everyone online. I just said a lot of really important things. You'll just have to be here to hear those things. So here, listen, um, I was just sharing with everyone here that uh, where we're going this morning is we're going to get to a place where we behold Jesus for who he is in his vast array. We're going to behold the glory of Jesus, but we're going to be entering into the valley first. And here we are in the second week of Advent, and we are looking at the theme of peace. And I think that's pretty fitting, isn't it? Because last week... I shared with all of you that we are right now, at this present time, dealing with not one, but three different state of emergencies all at the same time. So we have the flood, we have COVID-19, we have fears of a new variant, we also have the opioid crisis. It was only six weeks ago that the fire state of emergency was here, so four different ones that we were living through almost at exactly the same time. And that doesn't even take into consideration the things that you're personally bringing in here with you this morning. Right? Are any of you tired? Any of you feeling weary? You know, uh, one thing that we know, statistically speaking, is that the month of December is the most anxiety-inducing, fear-capturing month of the year. You can ask statisticians, you can ask doctors, counselors, resource workers, churches, pastors, they'll all tell you the same thing, that this is the month when the vast majority of the human race is dealing with a whole lot of anxiety and stress. Are you encouraged yet? So that's, that's what we're kind of bringing in here with us as we're trying to look at this text. And so here's the question that I want to lay out before you right on the front end. I put it this way. How can Christians find peace when they're going through dark times? How can Christians find peace when they're going through dark times? Because I know that for many of you, with each passing day, there's more and more anxiety, more and more stress, more and more fighting with yourself or with your friends or with your family members and you're feeling this anxiety and it is leaving you exhausted totally exhausted see some of you in the last three weeks if you've lived in the flood zone you have been faced with impossible questions the state of emergency comes out should i stay should i leave for those of you who are farmers, you say, should, should I leave my animals behind? Should I go? Should I stay? Okay, should I move them up to here? Okay, the water's receding. Should I bring them back? Oh, the waters are rising back up again. Where should I go? What's my contingency plan? What if I move them here and then this happens? What if I go over here? I have to have like 30 different plans all at once, and i got to be responding all the time, and I'm exhausted. And then on the other side, for those of us who maybe haven't been affected by it. We're saying, okay, how do I help? What do I do? Where do I go? What agency do I support? How can I contribute? Maybe I can make a pie, but I can't get through the cross zone. I'm not able to get there, so how can I help? And we're all feeling this helplessness to help. So we're feeling the anxiety. We're feeling the stress. And we're bringing all of that to bear with us Today And so I I found for myself this week, I've just been so eager to pray. You know? Just so eager to, to enter into God's presence 
with his people. Knowing that even as I look out at this room, so many of you have had so much stress over the course of the last 21 plus days. And then a a passage of scripture just, just hit me this week. And it was so remarkable for two reasons. One, because it's infinitely precious. And two, because I reminded myself that it was a passage of scripture that I shared with you on March 22nd, 2020. Do you remember what we were dealing with then? It was a week after COVID began and all of us were feeling anxious. And I want to share it with you again. Same word, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. Anxiety wears down the heart, but a good word makes it glad. And so once again, I want to share a good word with you this morning. Not not my word, but God's word to fill us with incredible peace. And so here's what I want you to do. If you have your Bible with you, I want you to find the book of Philippians. Philippians. Find one of four big books near the end of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Find Philippians chapter 4. And so while you're looking for that, let me just set the stage here. The premise of scripture is that there is a fundamental difference A fundamental difference between a human heart that tries to fabricate peace through sheer willpower and self-determination and hard work alone, and on the other side, a heart that has been transformed and given peace, and we have received that through the work of Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? So in one sense, there's, there's this longing that we have, like, I need to do more. I need to work hard. My willpower and determination will determine whether or not I will have peace. And on the other side, we have this incredibly rich message from Jesus that says, you're not going to find it. Only I can give it to you. Only I can give you peace. See, many people would say that the opposite of peace is war. Right? Doesn't that make sense? The opposite of peace is war. It's circumstantial. So if your life is filled with tragedy or calamity or war or natural catastrophes or dying or death, you can't have peace. It's impossible because you are dealing with anxious, war-like times. And yet for the Christian, we say we don't see it that way. Not at all. Peace is not something that is based on our circumstances. It is entirely based on your foundation. That's what we find in Scripture. And so here's what I want to do right on the front end. I want us to consider what peace is and what peace isn't. And so this is the first thing that I took note of. The opposite of peace is not war. Do you know what it is? Debilitating worry debilitating worry. That is the opposite of peace. And let me just show this to you so you see that I'm I'm not making this up. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. Here's what it says. Rejoice in the Lord. What's the word? Help me out. What's the word? Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, I'll say it again. Rejoice. 
Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, not your peace, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, if that was the only thing that Paul said, and he just stopped right there, then how superficial would that be? Like, for, especially for everything that you have endured over the course of the last number of weeks, for Paul just to come along and to kind of silver lining your pain, and to say, you know what, why don't you just buck up? Why don't you just, like, deal with it? You know, I've been talking with uh, a lot of farmers, and we've kind of been chuckling together because one of the comments that I have heard so many times in the last three weeks is, someone's had it worse than me, (laughs) right? Someone's had it worse than me. And then we will sit down, we'll talk together, and we'll say, yeah, but who is that person? There's some anonymous guy out there. I don't know who he is. No one knows, but he's had it the worst And so what we need to do is just kind of silver lining the pain, right? Pacify the pain. It's not about me. It's not about my circumstances. I just got to overlook it. I got to kind of move on, right? And yet God, he says the opposite thing. He says we, we enter into our grief. So that's not what Paul is saying here. He's not trying to pacify your pain. He's not trying to help you avoid it. He's trying to help you understand how you can enter into your pain and still have peace at the same time. Does that make sense? He wants you to enter into your pain and still have peace at the same time. Do you see that word anxious in verse 6? Take a look at it again. This is not the word for normal care and concern. It literally means to be torn into pieces, to be totally crushed, totally overwhelmed. And so, Paul is teaching us something about the nature and the character of peace and how we obtain it. And so here's the second point that I put on the screen. Peace is not based on circumstances. It's based on hope. It's based on hope. Everything that we've been learning for the last two weeks. And this is what he says. Verse 7. Look at it one more time. He says, And the peace of God which transcends all of our human understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So once again, whose peace is it? Is it your peace? Is this the peace that you fabricated? You know, you decided, I'm, I'm going to fortify the walls of my house, right? I'm going to put the levees up. I'm going to get enough money in the bank account and my RSPs and my TFSAs. I'm going to make sure I have security cameras all over the house. I'm going to make sure everything's totally secure. And then I'm going to have peace. No, it's not your peace. It's God's peace. Only God can give you this. No matter how hard you might try. You know, I was thinking about this this past week. And it's incredible to me to consider just how many books there are on the topic of peace. Right? Finding, finding your inner peace. A lot of New York Times bestsellers. And when you think about it, all of them, pretty much all of them, say exactly the same thing. Here's the way that you find peace. You need to expel negative thoughts. 
You need to remove negative experiences. So what do you have to do? You got to do yoga. You got to change your diet. You got to get more sleep. You have to remove the people who are creating negative feelings and experiences in your life. You know, delete them from Facebook and Twitter. Get rid of the family members who are negative and creating negative experiences in your life. You got to expel the negative. That's the only way that you can find peace. It's always the formula. Looking at the the first two notes I shared with you already, remove the war, remove the negative uh, circumstances and experiences. That's how you do it. But here, Paul says something incredibly countercultural. The very opposite of all of these books. Look at verse 11. Halfway through verse 11. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. What? Content whatever the circumstances? Are you kidding me? In light of everything that we've gone through, you can still be content? And then he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And we look at that and we say, how can that possibly be? How can you have peace in all circumstances? What's the secret? And so here's the third point that I put in your note sheet. Peace is not taken by you. It is given by God. God gives peace. You don't take it. You don't fabricate it. You don't make it for yourself. Because if you try to do that, you're only fooling yourself. Because there will come a day in which you will lose it. And you have placed your ultimate hope in something that ultimately will not satisfy your soul. And you'll perish on account of it. And so Paul says, don't, don't put your hope in that stuff. Otherwise, it will crush you. And then you have, to, you have to think about the person who's saying this, right? It's the Apostle Paul. He's been through a thing or two, hasn't he? He knows that if, if anything, he has experienced the type of life that after following Jesus, his life has gotten progressively worse. Before he was following Jesus, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was rising in the ranks of the Sanhedrin. He was probably my age in his early 30s, and he had seats even men 20 years older than him just wanted to have. And so that's where he was. They assigned him to be a persecutor of the church, and he was the main man. Then he started following Jesus, and and what happened then? He was persecuted, he was shipwrecked, Bandits were after him. The Sanhedrin was after him. He was stoned twice. He received the 40 lashes minus one. Man, this guy had a terrible life. A terrible life by human standards. And he says, I've learned the secret to have peace. It reminds me of what Jesus says in John chapter 15. He says, remember what I told you. A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me they will persecute you also. So it stands to reason that if we are followers of Jesus, we should expect some instability in our life. 
whether it be persecution or trial or hardship or sword or whatever else have you. That we should kind of expect that the circumstances of our life will not be very peaceful. But we can still have peace. Because Paul says the way to receive peace, verse 13, is through him who gives me strength. Through him who gives me strength. So here we see that the peace of God is not willfully removing the negative thoughts. It's not willfully expelling the negative experiences and the bad people in your life, trying to get rid of warlike times. The way to have peace is to have the presence of God himself in your life. So peace is where you get something in your life, a a living power comes into your life, and it enables you to triumph over your circumstances, even as the waves crash against you. So let me give you an example of this. Many of you know that I was born and raised in the Maritimes. I spent the first 12 years of my life in Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, and Nova Scotia. And there are many times when I was able to go to the ocean, and there you're kind of looking out at this beautiful vista. And if you go there on a stormy day, you see these huge waves, sometimes two, three, maybe even four meters high, crashing against these huge boulders. And if you've never experienced it before, there's these moments where as it's crashing against it, you go, there's the end of that boulder. Like, there's no way it survived. Totally engulfed by the wave. And then the water comes down, and you see that the boulder remains. The rock remains. And so here's the fourth point that I I hope just kind of sticks with you this week as a definition of peace. Peace isn't the removal of the waves. It's the stability of the rock. It's the stability of the rock. Paul's life is like that. If you read his life, like I said to you already, wave after wave after wave. Man, his life was terrible. Like, if you want to do this, you can uh, read through 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just take note of it. Read that whole chapter later. If you want to get a taste of what Paul's life was like. All the negative experiences that he had. And do you know what he calls them after kind of walking you through all the negative stuff? He calls them light momentary afflictions. In the scope of eternity, that's the way that he sees them because he has such incredible peace. But by the same token, like I said to you before, Peace is not something you take. It's not as though Paul is saying, you know what, I'm just, I have a natural proclivity to be able to be a peaceful person even during bad circumstances. You know, I'm just as cool as a cucumber. Not everyone's that way, but when you're like me, you can have peace. No. He's not talking about himself and the things that he is able to do. He's talking about something that he has received. Now let's keep looking. You might have noticed that I skipped verses 8 through 10. Let's look at them right now. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Take note of that, that word think. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, 
and the God of all peace will be with you. So here's what I want us to take note of. Paul says that the first step of receiving this secret, what he calls the secret of peace, is three things. I think there's three things that we need to take note of. The first, and it's always kind of in this incremental order, the first thing that we do is we think about the promises of God. We think about the promises of God. It always starts with thinking. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is admirable. And he's not just talking about, you know, daisies and lilies and flowers and kids running in the field. He's not just talking about happy things. What he's talking about is doctrine, understanding scripture's script, understanding the elements of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and the consummation of all things, understanding the narrative of scripture. That's what he's talking about. And then, of course, lilies and children running are all part of that because he made them. He put his mark on them. And so he's saying the very first thing, if you want to have peace, the thing that you need to understand fundamentally is the story of Scripture. You might say, really? How? Why? Let me give you an example of this. It's going to require a little bit of critical thinking, but that's why I think this example is so incredibly helpful when you think about it. Um, Charles Darwin, many of you, if you've taken a philosophy or a history class, maybe you've heard about him. He was a self-professed agnostic. Many people thought he was an atheist, but he never said that. He said he questioned the existence of a god or gods or deity or heaven or hell. He didn't really think that it existed, but he was open to the idea. And he, he once shared a quote, which I just find so fascinating, that it's, it's not someone who believes in God who said this, but here's what he says. A man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or future existence with retribution or reward, you might say heaven or hell, can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are strongest or which seem to him to be the best ones at the time. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see the point he's making? Even as someone who is questioning the existence of God, he's saying, if you don't believe in God, then you kind of just have to assume that you're here by a cosmic accident. And if that's the case, then even in your suffering, it's meaningless. You think, the Apostle Paul, he said exactly the same thing. He said, if Christ was not raised, then eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you're going to die. So you could say, even in the midst of your own pain, the midst of your own tragedy, you could say, Justin, I'm dealing with pain. And do you know what Darwin would say? Worms have pain, don't they? Is your pain more significant than a worm's pain? You say, I'm, I'm crumbling. Trees crumble? Say, yeah, but I'm more important than a worm or than a tree. Says who? Says who? Unless you believe that there is a creator God who put his image upon you and has given you infinite value, then you might feel as though you're more important than a worm or than a tree, but you just feel that way. It's just your own natural instincts taking over. 
And here's the thing. You might endure peace. You might endure hardship. You might endure trial. You might endure war. You might endure sword. But who cares? Who cares? Because you're going to live tomorrow, tomorrow, or you're going to live today, tomorrow you're going to die, and we're not going to remember this anyway. But here's what's so fascinating about this. It's typically during times when we are dealing with immense pain that people are drawn to ask questions. Like, why did this happen with respect to the flood? What, what's going on? Who's to blame? Why did this happen? God, where are you? We start asking theological questions. We start thinking. And Paul says it always starts with thinking. And by the way, I think that's one of the reasons why all these New York Times bestsellers, when they're talking about finding peace, say that the way to find peace is to expel negative thoughts and negative experiences. Because they're looking for something and they can't. They can't find the foundation. And so they say, like, it can't be, you know, find your peace in God. It must be you just have to grab the bull by the horns, expel the negative, because life is short, and then you're going to die. We're looking for something. We're looking for hope. But the Bible gives us that script. The Bible gives us a new story. It says, there is a God, and he did make us for fellowship with him and with one another. And he did create a perfect world, and he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then we rebelled against him, and sin flooded into the human heart, and it affected all of creation. And now all of creation groans like a mother in childbirth, weary and aching. And every single time something evil or inhumane happens, God says, I didn't make it that way. And tears flood his eyes. But also we believe that God said, I will make a way. I will make all things new. And so he promises his son. And his son comes from heaven to earth. He puts on flesh as a helpless babe and then the promise is that he will make all things new. He will redeem us. And there he goes to the cross, scorning its shame. Even though he was sinless in every way, he becomes sin so that we can be set free. And in the scope of that, we now see that God is promising that the consummation of all things, where one day he will make all things new, and even your suffering will be redeemed. God will work backwards in such a way that every iteration of pain, every tear that you've ever cried, will be redeemed through Jesus. And so now we can say, in the scope of eternity, yeah, I have, I have peace. Because God is doing something I cannot see. But I trust him. The world longs to find answers to our questions about peace. We say, yes, my life might be full of darkness. It might be full of torment and pain. But help is on the way. Jesus is coming. And yet the world says something like this. I love the way that J.R. Tolkien puts it. 
He says, the world says this, Ho, 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 to the bottle I go, to heal my heart and drown my woe. Rain may fall and wind may blow and many, many miles be still to go, but under a tree I will lie and let the clouds go sailing by. That's the world's peace. Numb the pain. Avoid the circumstances. Flee from the war. That's how you have peace. And Jesus says, no, enter in. Enter into the pain. And I will give you peace in the midst of the storm. But there's another thing that Paul says that we should do in order to find peace. It starts with thinking about Scripture's script, thinking about everything that God has done in his story of redemption through his word, and then it moves toward thanking God for his past and his future promises. Look again at verse 6. Here's what it says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, I want you to look really carefully at that because my assumption is we just read that verse and many of you heard, present your requests to God and when he comes through, give thanks. But that's not what it says. Look at it again. He says, present your requests with thanksgiving. And it's kind of odd because we might ask ourselves, why would I do that? Why would I give thanks ahead of time? Shouldn't I wait and see if God comes through in the clutch? Make sure that he, you know, makes all things new first, that he actually fulfills his promises. And then once he does that, I will say, wow, thank you, God. Why would I say thank you on the front end rather than on the back end? Well, because Christians know that their life is ultimately in God's hands. We have hope, like we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And once you know this reality deep into your bones, not just an intellectual faith, it always starts there, right? It starts with thinking, but then it moves into your heart And you know that the promises of God are as good as done. Because you've looked through this book and you have seen that God's track record on faithfulness is flawless. 100%. He always keeps his promises. And so we can rest secure in his future promises too. And so you, you might say, Justin, but how do I know? How can I be sure? Well, let me give you the one example that I think is the ultimate example to answer that question. Any other anecdote or story that I could try to give you will not come close to this one. This month, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ came from heaven down to earth and he entered into a stable. He put on flesh. And from there, he grew up and he went to the cross Willingly, he went to Golgotha, the land of the skull, and there he stretched out his hands and he died a sinner's death even though he had never sinned. And even during that time, there were Roman officials who said, he saved others, can he save himself? But you know what? He could. He could have. 
At any moment, he could have called upon a legion of angels to come and to deliver him from this warlike time so that he could have peace, but he stayed. Why did he stay? Because, because he saw my face. He, he saw your face. And he stayed for that reason, so that you could have peace. Jesus lost all of his peace so that you could have peace. But here's what's so amazing about that story. We know that each of the disciples... Each of the followers of Jesus, during that time, they looked at the cross and they said, God, how can this be? Look at Jesus. He, he, was, he was our leader. He was our teacher. Look at the miracles, the teaching, the wonders. How could God possibly redeem this? They didn't have the eyes to see that it was only through the cross that we could truly have peace. And this example serves as a case study to what God does in every single one of your lives. Even in the midst of your warlike time, even in the midst of your suffering, God says, I will redeem it and I will make all things new. I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And if you look to the story of the cross, if I can redeem the cross, I can redeem your life too. That's the promise of Scripture. And so with respect to our own experiences and our own prayer life, and we're asking God why, I, I often think of one of my favorite quotes on this topic from one of my favorite living authors, Timothy Keller. He says this about God. Picture God saying this. God says, when a child of mine makes a request, I always give that person what he or she would have asked for if they knew everything I know. But we don't know, do we? I like to say that sometimes the rearview mirror on the faithfulness of God is crystal clear, but the front windshield is full of bugs. We can't see it. We say, God, like, what are you doing here? I just don't have the eyes to see it. And God says, put your trust in me. Do you believe that? To the degree that you believe that, you will have peace. You'll no longer see yourself as a victim of circumstance, tossed around by the wind. You'll see your life as a vital part of God's redemptive story. And even while you experience negative circumstances, you're not going to rejoice about your suffering. You're going to rejoice in your suffering because you know that God is doing something incredible in your midst. So we don't get excited about it. We say, oh yeah, I'm suffering. But we get excited about the fact that God is doing something great. So today, with respect to COVID, fires, floods, death, circumstances, do you know specifically how God's going to work all these things out? I don't. I don't. But I do know the promise. I know the promise is that God will make all things new. And a promise of God is as good as done. And when I was thinking about this this past week, I thought about Olympic rowing, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. As far as I know, it's the only sport 
where the athlete never looks at the finish line. Maybe you can think of another one. You can tell me about it later. But it's the only sport I can think of where the athlete never looks to the finish. And they do that for two reasons, I've been told. One is so that they can leverage all their strength because it's easier to pull with all your strength than to pull or to push. But the second thing is so that they can maintain a proper trajectory toward the finish line. Because as you might assume, as, as they're doing this, it's very easy for them to deviate off course to the right or to the left. And so they keep their eyes fixed on the start line as a trajectory to help them get toward the finish. And I think Christians are that way. We look toward the faithfulness of God in the past. We keep our eyes fixed on him, even in the midst of the tossing of the waves, so that he can bring us to the finish line. And in the same way, that is what God is doing for you and for me. One more instruction from Paul. After we think about the promises of God, after we thank God for both his past and his future promises, then we look to his unshakability. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm running with it. The unshakability of God. The unwavering nature of God. He does not change. We've been leading toward this question, the question that I started with. How can Christians find peace even when they go through dark times? See, look, if you have peace anywhere else, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you, if you have peace or hope stored up anywhere else, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. Why? Because stock markets crash. Because people disappoint. Because bodies age. Because items tear apart or get ripped apart or they decay over time. Because circumstances change. Because storms come. And because levees fail. If you put your peace and your trust and your hope in anything else, you'll lose it. So God says, put your trust in me. There's only one thing that is immutable, unshakable, unwavering, untouchable, regardless of the circumstances that may come. Unyielding, unbending, permanent from this day to the end of our days. And his name is Jesus. Put your peace in him. Not only that, I was thinking about this this week in light of Albert's passing. There are no circumstances that can take the peace of God away from you. In fact, think about this, the worse your circumstances get, the closer to the promise you become. Think about that for a second. Have you ever thought about it? What, what, what's the worst circumstance that you could ever experience? Death, right? Death is the, the final enemy. It's the only enemy that ultimately will disappoint, and there's, there's no redemption factor in that. It's death. And yet for the Christian, we now see death as a gateway into life with him. And so that's why we can join together with Paul and we can taunt death. We can say, death, bring it. Because we know that regardless of the circumstances of our life and what we may face, that ultimately God's going to use it in such a way that he will bring about his glory and my good. And so I can rest secure. God, 
please give me the eyes to see that. The way that Paul sees it, to taunt death, to say, bring it on. Bring it on. You don't scare me any longer. On Friday, Brian Bransma and I were talking about the email I sent to you um, about Psalm 88. And if you've read it, if you haven't read it, I will encourage you to read it later. But if you do, or if you have, you know that it ends with no redemption, right? No hope, no glimmer of light, no nice story. It just ends in total, utter darkness. It's so discouraging. And yet, I want to read a piece of it to you, and I want you to see that even in the most depressing chapter in all of Scripture, there's hope. Let me read it. Verses 9 and 10. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. And then he gives an accusation. He says, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave and your faithfulness and destruction? Look right at me. If you are a Christian, the answer to that question is infinitely yes. Yeah, it is. Because every person who has put their hope in Jesus is now in glory with God. Albert can see that today. So his family mourns. We as a faith family mourn his parting. But we've, we mourn because we've been left behind for now. But right now he's singing and dancing before the Lord. And so even in our circumstances now, we can do it exactly the same way. I want to share one story with you and then I'll close. How many of you know that familiar hymn, My Sin, Oh, the Bliss of That Glorious Thought? I was thinking of singing it to you. But then I said, maybe we could sing it together. So anyone who's willing, I want to do it a cappella with you right now. I think we have the words on the screen. And hopefully I'll start it in the right tune, Jason. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious Thank you for doing that. Do you know who wrote that? A man who had been through such incredible tragedy. A man who, three months before writing that, lost every possession he ever had in the great Chicago fire. A couple months later, his wife and his four beloved girls entered a ship and they were capsized and his four girls were lost at sea. So in the course of three months he lost everything. A couple days later he wrote that song. To the amazement of all of his friends and family members who said, how can you have such incredible peace 
He said, though storms may come, I have peace in the arms of Christ. That's the peace that I hope for you. Regardless of what you are going through today, I want you to know that Jesus is not like a politician who makes campaign promises and he oversells and under-delivers. Jesus' promises are blood-bought. You can take them to the bank. And when you know that in your bones, you can have incredible peace. My prayer for you in this season of Advent is that you will have the peace of Jesus that only he can bring. Because you see, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup and he poured it and he said, this cup represents my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you see, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he ordained the supper as a constant memorial and a, and a visible proclamation of his defeat over death so that we can all have peace. We will have peace with him in the future, but we can have peace with him now. He came to earth so that we could have heaven. He suffered so that we wouldn't. He died so that we could have life. And we now understand that God has done all of that and more for you and for me. Not only that, this sacrament also is a means of grace which unites each and every one of us to one another. The promises of God are not just for us individually, but are for us corporately. Which means we live the same way families live. As a body of Christ, arguing with each other, fighting with each other, rejoicing with each other, mourning with each other, helping one another. We do it all as a family as we rejoice in the promises of God. And so even as Christ unites us to God, he also unites us with one another. And finally, this sacrament also confirms in us the hope that Jesus Christ will actually come again. 